This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. Well, it's another week, Jan, and another collection of authors. And more reading, more chatting, and... And more isolation. We're still (laughs) doing it at a distance. We are. And sometimes our ability is compromised to an extent by our recording facility, but let's give it a go. How well do you really know your mother and father? My mum lived until she was nearly 90. You'd think that was heaps of time to know everything, but sometimes there was reluctance to answer, maybe even an avoidance of a topic, but mostly it was lack of questions from me. Darlene Bungie is a biography writer and her subject is her father in Daily Cool. Welcome to Published or Not, Darlene. Thank you, Jan. Now, I'm going to get you right away to jump into page 214 and read a little from Daddy Cool. I grew up listening to my father sing. I'd hear him rehearsing in the bedroom, preparing for concerts or recording sessions, running through his chords, tapping his tuning fork to find the notes and cupping his ear to judge if he were pitch perfect. He'd sing as we washed and dried the dishes together. He'd sing all about the house. His voice was part of my everyday. (laughs) Look, your dad is not known as a celebrity now, but he was. When did you know he was famous? Uh, I think I truly knew he was famous, to tell you the truth, when I was writing the biography because so much more information came out about his early glamorous years in America. Uh, as a child, I'd hear him singing on the radio. I'm not even sure we did play his 78 records, but I knew there were stacks of them kept in a cupboard somewhere. And you knew all along that his name now was Laurie Brooks, but he had another name. He had another name and another life and other wives. I mean, he had a very rich history before he became my father. Your own writing is of biographies, and prior to this one, you've written biographies of artists Arthur Boyd and John Olson. Because it was your father, was there less research required to write a biography? Well, not when I got to the part where he was in my life, but to the part that I never really knew about, the, the, the beginning of his life, his childhood, his adolescence, and then his... Um, career and his fame and then his war years came as a complete surprise to me i found wonderful research on how he entertained the troops in uh, the middle east and new guinea a lot of uh, a lot of research at the beginning of his life and that's why mickey as you call her the answer to a biographer's dream what did mickey have for you well mickey was my half sister and she was a child of my father's first marriage. There was 16 years between us and I didn't meet her until I went to work in California. We became the sisters we should have always been. When she was old enough, when she was in college and then married and having babies herself, she was very, very hungry to know the facts about my father's life because he left when she was just a toddler, even though he wanted to have custody, he couldn't. And then he traveled to Australia and never left Australia until he finally saw her and her children in 1976. So she would write to my father and ask him really forthright questions. And he would 
about the family, about himself, about his history, and he being even more forthright and truthful would write everything she wanted to know straight back again, and perhaps a little bit more than she didn't want to know. So uh, those letters were kept, um, and it was just a miracle to me because I learned so much more about my father than I don't think, I, I couldn't have possibly learned these things from newspaper articles or, so we better get some biographical history of your dad. You write that from conceivement to birth, there was drama of earthquakes and storms, which set the scene of his life. But what was this court case involving moral turpitude all about? Well, that was his parents. Um, it, it's so strange to think of your, your grandparents um, misbehaving, but they obviously did. And that's what the judge passed down. And so my father ended up being brought up by his grandparents, my great-grandparents. Yeah, so your father had divorced parents and there were so many divorces that followed through this book. In fact, uh, Mikey's mum, Catherine, had to get a divorce before she could marry your father. Well, where did they live for the years before she divorced him and took Mikey back to California? My father, his father had just died. It, uh, he was visiting home. He saw her. She was just absolutely beautiful. They had a whirlwind romance he goes to Hawaii and says I'm going to send for you and we'll be married and I think it was just doomed from the beginning they waited a year for each other the marriage only lasted about a year and a half it wasn't singing that wasn't the reason he went to Hawaii in the first place it was basically to become an apprentice a house painter well it was a depression I mean he he had been singing on radios as a young man and winning sort of the equivalent of what you call it, the voice or something like that. Mm. Um, but then came the depression and even though he was singing in wonderful venues and very well appreciated, he couldn't get a full-time job. So he needed to, to get away. I think the family wanted to separate him from Catherine and Catherine's family wanted to separate her from him. So that's why he went off to Honolulu, but within six months, he was uh, writing and starring in his own radio show. So the house painting didn't last very long. So the radio program led to a singing job at the Royal Hawaiian. Now, it, it, I've, I've, as a tourist, been there, the Pink Palace, it's called, or the Pink Hotel, and it's quite a glamorous place. Well, if you think it's glamorous now, I, I think you could multiply that by about a thousand in 1930s because it was the Royal Hawaiian and the Moana were the only hotels that sat on Waikiki. There was no other hotel, just palm trees and white sand. And uh, it must have been just so romantic and glamorous, singing through a megaphone, candlelit tables outside close to the ocean very inventive involving the Hawaiian musicians as well. Yes, he loved um, the steel guitar and all of the various uh, instruments and, and uh, lyrics that made uh, Hawaiian music years on become incredibly um, famous uh, on the mainland of America. It was here he met Ruby, older and much wealthier. Who was she married to? Well, Ruby was married to uh, 
the highest paid, most successful film director in Hollywood, Lloyd Bacon. And he uh, gave Ruby everything she wanted, but uh, Ruby wanted my father instead. She wanted him. <laughs> And she was determined pursuer and finally won in with a, uh, this is a quote from the book, a cataclysmic kiss and turned up <laughs> naked in his bed. Now, I'm sure this is something he did not tell you. <laughs> he didn't tell me, but he wrote it to Mickey, which I found extraordinary. I think if my mother had read it, she would have killed him. But anyway, um, I was very grateful to have found it. And he did say to Mickey, I'll give you the details, but it does sound like a dime store novel. Ruby was a very determined pursuer and she got her man, but uh, I'm not sure that uh, that worked out so well in the end. No. Well, so your dad left Hawaii to work back in San Francisco and he was singing in a hotel and the owner of the hotel was, was so impressed that he offered to send your father off to Europe to further his study. But what happened mid-song one night? Oh, my goodness. Well, that, that happened down in a place, it was called a Palomar Ballroom. It took up two blocks. It was the most glamorous place to go to for dinner and dance. And so thousands of people would go in their dinner jackets and glamorous dresses. Anyway, my father's in the middle of a song. Through the crowd, two burly policemen come up to the stage. And in the middle of his song, they arrest him, put cufflinks on him and drag him out into the police truck and into the slammer overnight. And it was, it was because um, Bacon wanted to destroy his career and he had a trumped up charge of my father not appearing uh, for the divorce proceedings. So it had media headlines at the time, you know, big time movie director, ex-actress, nightclub singer, false arrest, bigamous marriages, hotel brawl and string of divorces. <laughs> the hotel brawl was another, that was Ruby's next husband that she married uh, while she was still married to my father. <laughs> and my father confronted them in a hotel lobby and, and blows were exchanged. And again, the police were called. My father was really a very gentle and uh, peaceable man, but I, you know, the early years were quite fraught. And you sort of talk about this living the high life, didn't really agree with him. He lost his way. Well, he did. I mean, it must have been very easy. He, he was quite, um, strict with himself, no drinking, no smoking, mm. Christian scientist when he was in Honolulu. And uh, then life with Ruby just, just must have spiralled into excesses of all sorts of things, but certainly gambling and drinking and late nights. <laughs> <laughs> there was Laurie, Lawrence Brooks, he came to Australia and sang with bands here. And then, of course, World War II broke out. You alluded to this before. What unit did he join up with? It was the Entertainment Corps, uh, and it was the first unit that was created, and the very best entertainers went into it. I was so surprised about how much money was spent on this entertainment unit. £170,000 worth of theatrical props and equipment and costume designers and seamstresses and electricians were hired. It seems incredible amount of money. Well, perhaps the theatre of war is always, whatever theatre it is, 
very expensive, both in lives and money. You mentioned travelled overseas, Beirut, Lebanon, Syria, New Guinea, putting on stage shows in some, some of the most remote places. But in the book, you tell us that they were trained also, and the unit occupied and defended a bridge point. So they yes. knew fight as well. Yes, they had to be trained as soldiers before they were allowed to uh, travel across uh, and my father lost his friend in one of those skirmishes and they'd be singing with, with, with the bombers going over. And... In tropical storms as well. Well, the rain just never stopped up in New Guinea. After the war, he married a Gloria, divorced her and then married another Gloria. She must have been quite a woman to keep him married till the day he died. But she had a very interesting background herself. Well, yes, yeah, she, she was quite a, an entertainer. Jack Davey gave her a prize, an impersonation she did for a competition on radio when she was 13. And then years later, she ended up working for Jack Davey and stayed in radio all of her working life and just adored it. And that's how she met my father. She ended up being uh, the head of publicity for Colgate Palmolive and he, had to go in and meet her to tell her all about his career. He had no idea she was going to rescue him from his string of marriages. <laughs> Let's hear a little bit more from Daddy Cool from page 123. Yet she saw perfectly clearly abandonment was something she recognised up close and under the layers of Laurie, Lawrence, Bob, Robert, Buster, she could see a heart to repair, to nurture, someone on whom to lavish her hope, someone who needed what she had always wanted, the fortress of the picket fence. Well, to give stability to this new family, he worked as a proofreader for a newspaper, but once commented he was more than a proofreader because he had sung at the Academy Awards in front of Betty Davis, Catherine Hepburn, Clark Gable, and in front of the Queen in Australia. But then again, he could also read you, Alice in Wonderland, with perfect diction. Yes, I mean, he always was such a strict father when it came to grammar and diction and writing. But this, the quote that you just used was, he never ever referred in any way to his past life as, as something that he regretted leaving behind, the fame and the adulation and the money. He never ever spoke about it. But only once to my sister when... She, my sister Geraldine Brooks, was going over to Columbia University and she was filling out her form and she gave it to my father to proofread and it was only when he handed it back to her and he said, I used to be a lot more than a proofreader. That just speaks volumes about my father's character. I mean, he was a wonderful man. He never complained about his ill health or bad luck or he just got on with things. And he was a really happy man with my mother and, and said another time that he had no regrets about not pursuing his career because uh, his family had given him all the happiness that he could ever hope for. You spoke about him being very good at singing and also very good with letters. And you found amongst everything that he left a lot of letters, a two-page letter from Malcolm Fraser, a note from Robert Menzies, a telegram from Gough Whitlam, a letter of thanks from the Queen, and many newspaper clippings from his published letters to the editor. His delighting words must have led you and your sister into the literary field. Do you think it was his 
ability with letters? I think, I think both our parents. My mother was a writer too. She was writing wonderful articles for the Sydney Morning Herald when she was in her 60s and 70s. We all loved reading. We all loved words and it was just part of our everyday at home. Yeah, but my father was a writer early on and his father was a sports writer, very famous sports writers. And my father made money before the Depression as a short story writer for magazines. You mentioned your sister before. I've had delight in speaking with Geraldine Brooks many times here at 3CR. And I loved her comment about you. She said, my sister is an award-winning biographer and her discoveries astonished me. So she didn't know about her own father either. I think, uh, I think the details, some of the things in the book are the stuff of uh, family legend and why dad changed his name and how he changed his name because he looked out the window in Los Angeles and saw Brooks Brothers. <laughs> um, men's haberdashery store. Uh, well, he had to do that because of all of the bad publicity because of rubies. Who can truly know their parents? Darlene Bungie writes about her father with a truthful eye and a loving heart. And why does she call it Daddy Cool? You'll have to read it to find out. Well, Darlene, thank you very much for being here on Published or Not, 3CR. And thank you for telling, talking to me about your book, Daddy Cool, published by Alan and Anun. Thank you, Dan. Thank you. You may be wondering what Laurie Brooks sounded like. Well, here he is singing Peg of My Heart with the Jim Gussie Orchestra. Society has become more open and understanding about mental illness, but there is often a lack of awareness about how it manifests itself and how it should be addressed. Hilda Hinton, in her novel The Loudness of Unsaid Things, confronts us with an adolescent, Susie, who is coming to terms with her own identity against a backdrop of such an uncertainty. So, Hilda, welcome to 3CR. Oh, thanks for having me, David. Now, one of the challenges with this interview and talking about this novel is not to give anything away because the <laughs> chronology in Susie's life is very revealing. It is, uh, but we'll manage. To begin with, Susie loses her mother fairly early on, but the challenge has been that she's had to divide her time between her mother, who isn't stable, and her father, her parents having separated. Susie resented her fortnightly visit to her mother, but she tried to smile. So Susie's become adept at reading the telltale signs that indicate her mother's mood. So she's quite a clever young lady. Yeah, well, she's had to adapt, uh, which, which many kids do uh, when they've got mentally unwell parents. She's savvy, 
she looks for signs she wonders whether her mother's going to be um she calls her a zombie in the corner uh from a child's perspective or whether she's going to be vivacious and adventurous and over the top and um so she flits between the two and she adapts accordingly she's quite um at ease spending time on her own if her mother's not um sort of participating uh because her father's one step removed from her as well she's she's quite isolated but she's only um, seven at this stage or thereabouts isn't she yeah well this this takes us through till she's about 12 that's right yeah. there's of course Susie's love for her mother but that feeling of guilt there's a duality that sort of establishes itself uh, there is a duality it was much like this this section of the book's definitely quite autobiographical I had an unwell mother and found myself having to adapt and adjust. And I think kids kids are more uh, sort of adaptive than people give them credit for. Um, they're quite savvy and smart. Um, they're aware of what's going on and nuances, and uh, they adapt accordingly. But one of the things that struck me is that really, legally, Susie has to spend time with her mother once a fortnight. But it's almost like the law is placing the child in a very precarious situation yeah it was also a different time kids saw their parents regardless I mean as a child I, I used to visit uh, my mother in Royal Park Mental Institution and Parkville Private and I'd just be dropped at the door and sort of go on in um, these things wouldn't happen now um, so I think we need to we need to look at you know how things were in the 70s and early 80s versus now completely different time so we're learning and acquiring a greater understanding of the impact on both the person suffering as well as the extended family around that person. We are. And awareness has grown exponentially because back in, the, back in those times, it was all swept under the carpet and you didn't speak of it, which is one of the reasons The Loudness of Unsaid Things was the title, because there were so many piles of unsaid things growing around her that she didn't really sort of know what to do with herself. There's also uh, unsaid things in adolescence anyway with children growing up. So we progress to the next stage of the story. Uh, Susie starting high school. She's quite feisty. She's quite independent. She's selling newspapers on the street. She defends weaker students and earns a place at University High, which is no mean feat, but she seems to form attachments with those on the periphery. She does. She's, she gravitates towards the outsiders. She doesn't, she doesn't have a place uh, amongst her peers. She doesn't have a place amongst the adults around her. And she just decides courageously to keep searching and keep looking because there just has to be a place for her. And she looks around the periphery to try and find it because it's just not in the mainstream uh, that's in front of her. So she seeks out uh, those characters and she leaves home quite young um, and goes to Sydney and, and just faces every new person or place as an opportunity to find a place without but, bringing any so scars from previous experiences. But also there's a, an element of instability here. I mean, as you say, she goes to Sydney ostensibly to be with uh, Geoffrey, who's one of the children she identifies with. It's not a sexual relationship or anything like that. But uh, all of a sudden she decides she's going to Sydney. She lives with Geoffrey's family. But then that 
relationship falters. It does. It falters after a time. And I think Susie's prone to self-sabotage, but it's not, um, it's sort of born from naivety. And every time something looks like it's going south, she exits. She exits stage left, takes herself out and tries to find a new place. She also puts herself in dangerous situations, though. Uh, I don't think they're any more dangerous than any other teenager. Um, We've all done it when we were growing up. Um, it's dangerous when you're reading it as an adult, but when you're a when you're a teenager, walking around the world, trying to find your place in it, and your risk assessment tools are just dreadful, then you're constantly putting yourself in situations that are precarious and may go the wrong way. It begs the question of how we acquire that ability to read the signs and know when danger is approaching because you've got one or two moments when which are quite confronting. Absolutely. And I wanted to go there because these things happen. Um, life doesn't always tie itself in a neat little bow. And I think teenagers don't listen to the parents when they sort of list the things that could go wrong. You know, they go out anyway. They're not interested in hearing about what could go wrong. And it's something that they have to learn themselves. And that's literally part of growing up, you know, finding your moral compass, testing the waters, putting yourself in situations that you wouldn't do as an adult. And that's really how you bumble through. Now, another element that you have in this book, there's an undercurrent which actually begins the novel. We have reference to the Institute. The Institute for the damaged, the dangerous, the not quite rights, the big mistake makers, the ill at ease, the outliers. How close are we all to being outliers and the odd ones out? Um, So I wanted to create an institute that doesn't have a definition. You don't know what sort of institute it is. It doesn't have time. And it was sort of based on my experiences as a child wandering those halls. And feeling that this could be anybody and that people outside these institutions don't think about them. You know, the the people in my classes or as I was growing up, nobody knew anything about institutions um, and yet they're there and we just choose to close the door and forget about it. So I just wanted to bring it to the forefront a bit, maybe open some conversations on uh, what people are going through in these places Um, how they operate, and if you make a few sort of poor life decisions, you know, people with addiction, sort of mental health issues, you know, it's it's all just one step away. And I just wanted to put the conversation on the table. Well, that's the interesting thing. It's one step away. So how close are we all in certain circumstances to being close to mental instability? Uh, Well, I think we all are in some way. Um, A lot of us are lucky and have a lot of support around us and we work through our issues. Uh, But there's a lot of people with sort of different backgrounds. I spent a lot of time in housing commission flats uh, where my mum resided as well. And uh, people people come from behind, so to speak. Um, Education's lower, care's lower, self-care's lower, Um, addiction's around the corner. Uh, and it's, it's, you know, it's one step away from all of us, really. Well, especially in a climate like we have at the moment, where 
what we took for granted as certain and absolute has all of a sudden been uh, pulled from out, out from underneath us. Oh, it's very challenging from a mental health perspective. Um, I'm lucky in that I've got a fairly full household. There are a lot of people out there alone at the moment and it's not an easy time. It's not, a, it's not easy being alone for weeks on end and we need to... I believe the government's just put somebody in charge of mental health in regards to COVID uh, because it is a real issue and we need to take care of each other, be mindful of each other, check in on our neighbours um, as best we can. And provide uh, so as much support uh, absolutely. to people as we can. Yeah. Well, Hilde, a fascinating insight into the progression of an individual in such a world, and we won't give away the ending per se, but there is a connection between Susie and the Institute that goes beyond just visiting her mother. So it's worth looking into. The novel, The Loudness of Unsaid Things, the author, Hilde Hinton, and it's an Hachette publication. So, Hilde, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR.